Hello and welcome to Beth Takoon and the Spiritual Season series. In this group of teachings, we are exploring the weekly Torah portions through the lens of the overall pattern of salvation we see in the yearly calendar. This week we are in portion Pincus or Phineas, numbers 2510 through the end of chapter 29. So let's start with a summary of the portion with a few beginning thoughts. The Parsha begins with the conclusion of the story of Pincus. Last week, the narrative cut off rather abruptly after Pincus dramatically takes matters into his hands by taking hold of a spear and thrusting it through an Israelite man and a Midianite princess who were apparently involved in performing an idolatrous act of fertility worship at the tabernacle. Last week, we saw that Pincus's action led God to stop a plague that was devastating Israel, a plague that had already killed 24,000. So we were given this indication that what Pincus did was good and life-giving, but God confirms that it was the right thing to do in the beginning of this portion. God says to Moses that Pincus turned back his wrath by acting zealously on his behalf. And the text continues, Behold, I give to him, this is God telling Moses what he's giving to Pincus, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. Well, there are a couple of ways to understand what God is doing for Pincus here. The rabbis say that Pincus actually was not a priest, even though he was a grandson of Aaron, and that God is making him a priest at this time. So the idea is that the inheritance of the priesthood only begins with those who are born after Aaron and his sons are elevated to the priesthood. Pincus Pincus was born before this important moment of elevation, so he barely missed out, coming about as close as a person could to the priesthood without receiving it. Remember that this consecration process for Aaron and his sons lasted a whole week, right? It was for him and his sons, but not his grandsons, um, it doesn't say. So, The process lasted a whole week, and during that time, they couldn't leave the tabernacle at all. And it's almost like they're being unmade and reformed in the tabernacle, and they're allowed to emerge again on the eighth day. And so, it's like they, they have become a different kind of human being, and this would actually support what the rabbis are saying here. Aaron and his sons were changed when they were consecrated for the priesthood, and that change could be passed on to their descendants. But Pincus was already born, so he was a product of the old Aaron and the old Eliezer, who was his father, right? So Aaron, the grandfather, Eliezer, the son, Pincus, the grandson. But here, God makes Pincus a priest, and he would have likely had to go through then the whole inauguration process like Aaron and his father Eliezer did. Another idea 
about what this perpetual priesthood is and this, this covenant is that God is making with Pinchas here is that um, God is blessing Pinchas's line to not only remain strongly attached to the priesthood, but also be the primary priestly line from which the high priests will be selected. So we know that this is indeed what happened in history. At the time of King David, so this is about 500 years after Moses and Aaron, there's a priest named Zadok who aligns himself with David and stays faithfully by his side. King David raises him to the position of high priest, and for something like seven centuries thereafter, the high priests would come from the line of Zadok. Well, Zadok was descended from guess who, from Pincus. Zadok was the ninth generation descendant of Pincus. And so we're actually given that genealogy in Ezra because Ezra himself also descended from Zadok. Well, after this special covenant God makes with Pincus, God directs Israel to take a second census. The dying in the wilderness is over. This second census is needed because the land will eventually be apportioned partly based on the population of each tribe. The overall number of the census of the second census is very similar to the first census, which was 40 years earlier. In the second census, there are 1,820 fewer fighting age men. And so Grant talks about this number of 1820, 1,820, and he points out that that number is the number of God's name, which is 26, multiplied by 70, which is a number of perfection. And he also says that the name of God occurs 1,820 times in the Torah. So obviously this can't be a coincidence. <clears throat> it would seem that God is indicating that it is he who brings death. And he does so very carefully and exactly. It is God who carefully controlled what was happening in the wilderness all those 40 years. Those who needed to go, those who needed to pass away, he took them, including everyone from that first generation except Joshua and Caleb. But he did not take one soul more than was necessary. We learn a bit more from this second census. Though the overall number was similar to the first census, a couple of the tribes radically changed in number over the 40 years. The biggest occurred, this biggest change occurs in the tribe of Simeon, which lost a staggering 37,100 people in total from that first census to the second one, uh, becoming about 63% smaller over those 40 years. Since this census was taken right after the deaths of the 24,000 from the plague of Peor, the plague that God stops because of Pinchas, it's possible that many who died in the plague were from the tribe of Simeon. And we are specifically told that the Israelite prince that Pinchas killed was a prince of the tribe of Simeon. Simeon and Levi are a pair. It's the two of them that murder the city of Shechem after the rape of their sister Dina. Jacob's final words to these two are found in Genesis 49. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. 
Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. So there was a problem with anger here, and maybe a violent anger. Let's take note of that, because in the calendar, we're focusing on how God is particularly empowering us in this section of the year to bring correction in the area of the emotions. So here we see that this tribe of Simeon that carried this energy of violent anger is diminished in Israel. And we're reading about that now in this portion of the calendar. So on the other hand, God helped Levi to channel that, we might call it bloodthirstiness, through the occupation of the priesthood with its sacrificial system, right? So Grant says, if you have a bloodlust, become a butcher, right? <laughs> um, here, uh, God makes Levi the, the tribe who conducts the sacrificial uh, system. Simeon, on the other hand, simply had to be hemmed in, eventually receiving an inheritance that was surrounded by the tribe of Judah. God is gracious, though. Since Simeon's territory was surrounded by Judah, this would mean that Simeon survived when other tribes did not, because the territory of Judah eventually becomes the Jewish heartland and the center of Jewish life and culture, while most of the other tribes were mixing with local peoples and were eventually carried away and lost. In truth, though, Levi is also limited in, in another way in the body of Israel. Levi is dispersed throughout the nation since they don't inherit a cohesive tribal land area. And the occupation God gives them also forces their energies into the Torah and study of the Torah and into service for the rest of Israel. Simeon is contained, we could say, in a more physical way, like literally surrounded by the tribe of Judah, but Levi is contained, we might say, in a more spiritual way. Well, after the census, we have the laws of land inheritance. So the clarification here for how land is to be passed on comes about because the five daughters of Zelophehad step up and bravely ask that their father's inheritance not be lost simply because he had no sons. God agrees with them, and in the process, we get a full list of commandments clarifying how land is to be passed on from one generation to the next. Well, moving on in the text, God tells Moses that he is to ascend Mount Abarim, and there he is to see the land, and after he does, he will be gathered to his people, meaning he will God will take him. He will die. We see the greatness of Moses here in this moment. His response to God is not to ask for some kind of leniency. Instead, he is a good shepherd to the end. His response is, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. God acquiesces and instructs Moses to lay his hand on Joshua, the son of Nun, in the sight of Eliezer, the high priest, and in the sight of the people, and he is to transfer some of his authority to Joshua. 
So God tells Moses that he's about to die, and Moses' first thought is to make provision for his flock. Well, it must have been a moving scene there. Joshua loved Moses. He would have known that what Moses was doing when he was laying his hand on him um, was one of his final acts on earth. And what a weight those old hands carried. How exhausting to bear the burden of the people for a generation. But Moses had been faithful. Joshua must have been wondering how he himself would measure up to to Moses' example. Moses had set a very high bar indeed. Maybe it was some comfort to Joshua that the hands that carried the staff of God now rested on him as Moses invested him with some of his authority. In truth, though, God had already laid the foundation for Joshua's leadership by, for one thing, filling Joshua with the Spirit. When God tells Moses to lay his hand on Joshua in the sight of the people, God says that Joshua has spirit in him already. He says, lay your hand on Joshua, a man in whom is spirit. God is always moving pieces into place beforehand. He had been preparing Joshua for years for the task that was ahead of him. God's perspective is infinitely higher than ours. We just need to trust him. Trust that whatever task he has for you now, big or small, he has been preparing for you to do that for a long time. Well, lastly, in our portion, God goes through the Moedim once again, the appointed times, and this time giving the sacrificial offerings for each Moed, including the daily offerings, the Sabbath and new moon offerings, and all the offerings for the annual appointed times. And so we'll come back to these offerings later. But for now, let's just note that clarifying the Moedim is among the first things God is doing in this final phase of preparing Israel to live the fullness of life in the land of promise. These Moedim keep popping up in the text in some of the most critical places. Truly, God's appointed times are absolutely critical to the mature life of living in the land of promise, the good life, the life of connection to God and family and community. Right, A big part of living in the land is You have to get these Moedim right. And so here we have the sacrifices associated with each one. Well, let's do a little thinking now to place Pinchas in the flow of the calendar. Let's start where we usually do, the name of the portion. Strong's, that um, Bible dictionary or lexicon, suggests the name Mouth of a Serpent for Pinchas. And BDB says mouth of brass. So the the words for serpent and brass are similar in Hebrew. So we haven't had to go far to find a connection to the topic that we have been focusing on in recent teachings. Um, the, the, The topic we've been focusing on in this part of the calendar especially is death. Um... Or we could say death and the glimmer of new life. So what is the mouth of the serpent most evocative of? Well, that's the instrument of death. 
that is the instrument through which death uh, enters into the world, we could say, back in Genesis. Well, we have been focused on death partly because we are now entering the three weeks. In fact, today, as I'm recording, is the 17th of Tammuz, a dawn to dusk fast that begins the three weeks. It's a time of mourning, mourning for the great losses that the Jewish people have experienced during this part of the calendar from the very beginning of the nation, and particularly mourning the loss of both the temples on the 9th of Av. So these three weeks start with the 17th of Tammuz and end with the 9th of Av. Today, being the 17th of Tammuz, um, especially remembers the breaching of Jerusalem's walls by the Romans. The result, three weeks later, was the destruction of the second temple on the 9th of Av. And the first temple was also destroyed on the 9th of Av. It's just mind-blowing. Other events that happened during this three-week period include Moses breaking the first set of tablets, the evil report of the spies, and unbelievably, Jewish expulsions from England, France, and Spain. I think those were all also on the 9th of Av and in different centuries, in the 1200s, the 1300s, and the 1400s. In Spain, it happened to be 1492. So, It's hard to look at these days over history and and not think of a passage like Isaiah 59, where we read about God hiding his face, turning away from us. It says there, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. Well, more than commemorating these specific events, the three weeks is a time to mourn the brokenness of the whole world. In a certain way, In the Jewish mind, that brokenness of the world is symbolized by the destruction of the temple. When the world is squarely on the path to healing and peace, this will be reflected by the rebuilding of the temple. The status of the temple is like a barometer for the world then. As long as the temple mount remains desolate, or worse, as long as that golden dome exists there, squatting on that holy ground, and sheltering bloody hatred of the Jewish people in their own land, the Jewish people know that this long, bitter Roman exile continues, right? As long as that temple is not rebuilt, they consider that this exile continues. And so, in mourning the loss of the temples, the deeper groaning of the heart is for all the pain and agony and loss that humanity has experienced throughout time. In reference to the three weeks, Rabbi Trugman writes, Each person needs to hear not only the personal challenge being issued, but also, and even more importantly, each person must nurture the ability to scream, Echa! How could this have happened? And how can we bear this from his or her innermost soul in response to the brokenness of the world 
around us. But in the interest of balancing all this sadness with the idea of nascent life or life that's just beginning to form, form again in, in a dark and hidden place, let's look at the three weeks from another angle. Now, certainly we need to mourn at this time. I think our world would be much better off if we all stopped at least once a year to mourn together the sadness of humanity. But our portion here, Pincus, which is always read during the three weeks, does not begin in sadness, though the atmosphere of death is here, obviously. Instead, though, the focus at the beginning of Parsha Pincus is God reaching out to a man to make a covenant of peace. It's a portion that begins in the new life that comes after the death that Pincus brings. God has not made many covenants with mankind. This is a truly momentous event, the covenant of peace with Pincus. We know that eventually these days of mourning will be turned into days of rejoicing, and we are told this specifically regarding the three weeks in Zechariah 8, verse 19. Rabbi Schneerson, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, emphasized that because the hour is late in world history and because these days of mourning will eventually be changed into days of rejoicing, um, we should lean toward being optimistic on these fast days. And I think this is why the story of Pinchas is split in this strange way. These few verses describing God's covenant with Pinchas could have easily been attached to the previous portion So why split this story in the middle? Dividing it in half means that this portion that is read during the three weeks begins not with the second census, but with this optimistic, uplifting covenant with God, the life that follows death and is the whole point of death. And and the first event in, in a portion sets the tone for the whole portion. It's not the second census. It is this covenant with Pincus. Well, Rabbi Raskin tells the story thinking about just optimism during this time. He tells the story of how the Rebbe went to visit one of the children's camps in the Catskill Mountains. Before his visit, the counselors who ran the arts and crafts room were concerned about how the art room was covered in paint and glitter and glue, as um, any well-used art room should be, really. Uh, But before his visit, they painted on the ceiling the words Zecher Lekorban, meaning a remembrance of the destruction of the temple, meaning that as the kids look around and they see kind of a disaster, they should think of the destruction of the temple. When the Rebbe saw it, he said, Zecher Lekorban, Zecher Lemikdash. So the Rebbe... um, changed it to say, remembrance of the rebuilding of the temple. The process of of building and rebuilding also requires making a mess first. He chose to see the messiness of the art room, not as the destruction of the temple, but as the rebuilding of the temple. And so I think that's a, it's appropriate to add that as a balance. We do need to mourn at this time. 
I think we spend a lot of time just being silly in front of the TV, for example. I think we could do well to to spend some more time um, connecting with those who mourn. Um, But at the same time, we're looking forward to when these feast days will be days of rejoicing, and that will be when the Messiah returns. Well, all new life uh, first requires death. Uh, We need to be able to look at the serpent as not just the bringer of death, as was so clearly pictured with the bronze serpent in last week's portion. There it brought life, new life. So not all death is bad. When we experience death to the old life for the sake of receiving a new and better life from God, that kind of death is good. The death that Pincus right? The mouth of the serpent brings is good. This is the positive side of the snake. In the end, God created the serpent too, and all that he created is good. What we have gained from the existence of the serpent on earth is the chance to gain a whole new life with God The next time, and and a higher life, a deeper life with God. So the next time you see a snake, don't just think of negativity and death. Think about new life, too. In the calendar, we will come soon enough to the point that we will be able to see the new life that is forming now in a mostly hidden way. So this mixture of death and new life, right mouth of the serpent, is pointing us to death. But really, it's a mixture of both. It's a very optimistic beginning of this portion. This mixture of death and new life is our first connection between the calendar and Parsha Pinchas. Well, I want to make a a second connection now to the calendar and this portion. We have been touching now and then on this idea that this section of the calendar is a favorable one for working on our emotions. This portion of Pinchas prominently features the idea of zeal. Well, what is zeal? We might describe it as a great energy powered especially by the emotions. A great energy powered by the emotions. Zeal. Pincus's act to protect God and Israel is powered by zeal. And God says this specifically in chapter 25, verse 11. Phineas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was zealous with my zeal among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my zealousness. So the word is used several times there. And that word in Hebrew uh, for zeal is kinah. And it can also be translated as jealous or jealousy. So you might see jealous in, in the place where the word zealous is there. And Grant explains that it's really a combination of both these ideas, both zealous and jealous, this word, kina. Well, what does the story of Pinchas teach us about zeal and managing our emotions in general? Let me bring out a few quick points here. First, God designed our emotions to be a help for us. So they are good and are meant to aid us in doing what is good and right. And so if the emotions are good, then a strong emotional expression can be a wonderful gift 
right? Someone who experiences a lot of emotions, well, that's meant for good. And so that can be a real gift if it's properly controlled. And we see that proper control here in the story of Pincus. Some of us, and especially women, are sometimes accused of being overly emotional. But let's remember that the emotions are valuable tools given to humanity for processing our experiences and for giving us that oomph to act sometimes. So having strong emotions can be a very positive trait as long as those emotions ultimately are not what is running this show. And so if I were given the choice of either having to wrestle with very deeply felt emotions or having almost no emotions at all, I would choose the first. I mean, I, and I think in particular some of us, and I think I'm one of these people who is not very well connected to the emotions, and you lose something when you're not very well connected to your emotions. Well, here in this story, Pincus manages to act from his strong emotions in such a way that God stops a plague, right? The power of these emotions he's experiencing. God stops a plague and he extends a covenant to him, a perpetual priesthood, a covenant of peace. Well, emotions are a powerful gift and we should seek to cultivate the gift of the emotions, right? If you're someone who prides yourself on not feeling anything, well, that's not balance either, right? You're missing out on a tool that God has given us. Secondly, we can see here that our emotions can provide a vast amount of energy for action, adrenaline for action even. However, before we act, our emotions need to be examined so that we can properly channel that adrenaline. We can't just feel and become overwhelmed with what we're feeling and then act. We have to pause and give the mind a chance to examine. Only after we have done that, only after that do we act. Or maybe we choose to not act, which we probably should do much more often. Zeal is like charging up a battery, charging it with energy. Because our emotions only partly derive from our head, right? Our emotions are both from up here and from down here. So we're not fully conscious of them and where they're coming from, what their basis is, what their root is. And so they can't always be trusted. We must learn to be suspicious of our emotional reactions. In order to determine whether the energy suddenly filling the battery is kosher, we need to pause to examine the root of the emotions before we act. So what are we looking for? Well, one key here is to check for self-interest, interest related to maybe protecting our ego. Grant and Rabbi Schneerson, when discussing this portion, they both talk about how Pinchas is not criticized for what he did because his act had nothing of himself in it. It was all for the sake of God, for God's reputation, for the protection of God's agenda in the world, this special project of this holy people for protection of that people, right? That's what was motivating his action. If we check and find that our emotional reaction is coming from a place of self-interest, merely wanting to protect our reputation, for example, we should be suspicious that our emotions are not well-founded. So besides self-interest, 
what we're looking for as we examine those emotions and the root of them is we check whether or not the emotions we're experiencing are rooted in an outright lie. One of the most insidious lies that can subconsciously manipulate our emotions is the lie that if you don't act right now, a chain of events will start that will end in you ultimately not being provided for. You will end up on the street or you will even end up dead. Well, this is a lie. That's a lie from the pit of hell. God takes care of his sheep. And so this lie of I'm not going to be taken care of, it comes from a very deep place within us. And um, it's so deep that it usually evades detection until we get into the habit of probing specifically for it and exposing it, right? What, where is this all coming from that I'm feeling? If you, if you dig there, you might find, oh, well, I'm afraid I'm going to lose my job and I'm going to not have food to eat and my kids are not going to have food to eat and then we'll be thrown out onto the street and we don't, we don't think that way. But when we stop and think about what's motivating some of our emotions sometimes, we can trace it back to that. It's a fear of death. And it's a lie because we know that God takes care of his people. Emotions rooted in a lot of self-interest or rooted in lies should be rejected. They should be denied and shut down. This will short-circuit the battery and let the energy out of the system without causing harm. If, on the other hand, we find that our emotions are coming from a place of jealousy for God and for God's name and reputation in the world, or the desire to protect God's agenda in the world, his work in the world, or if our emotions are coming from a place of protecting the vulnerable, for example, and if our emotions align with truth, we can be pretty sure that we should act on those emotions with that full energy that they are providing. Rather than allowing that energy to fade away, we can let that adrenaline power what we do. In that case, our emotions are working as they should be, and God has given us an energy for accomplishing something powerful and good in the world. It should almost go without saying, though, that along with pausing even briefly to examine the root of our emotions before we act, we also need to check that what is in our head Uh, to do aligns with the Torah and with our spiritual authority as well. Would those in authority over us approve of what we have in mind to do? It's not clear here in the text, but the sages say that Pincus did in fact check check with the authorities before acting. They bring this out of the phrasing of Numbers 25, 7, which reads, when Phineas, the son of Eliezer, son of Aaron, the priest saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand. And it goes on. It's possible that Pinchas was sitting with the congregation of the leaders before he acted and that <clears throat> he acted with their permission um, as he took up his spear. What all this checking of our emotions amounts to is the mind taking full control over the situation so that we act from a place of truth and wisdom. And this is what Pincus did. Yeshua too 
is filled with zeal for his father's house and acts in a powerful way, in a righteous way, to clean out the money changers and others doing business there. We read about that in the Brit Hadashah reading for this Torah portion of how Yeshua was filled with zeal. And it quotes the, an Old Testament verse there, a verse from the Tanakh, which uses our word here for zeal. Well, speaking of Yeshua, let's finish now with a couple more connections to our rabbi Yeshua, the master. First, though, let's go back to last week for a minute. In the last teaching, I suggested that one way to read the Pincha story is that Zimri and Cosby together actually picture the Messiah's death. So Zimri, the Israelite man, means my song, and the Midianite woman is Cosby, which means my lie. Yeshua is God's song through whom he creates everything. On the cross, Yeshua put on the lie of this world with its sin and death. And in that state, he was pierced through like the two were in this story. Well, one might object to this reading by saying that Zimri acted sinfully. How could Zimri be a picture of Yeshua? Well, the answer is that God's intentions are always at work at a higher level than man's intentions. What man meant for evil, God used for good. God can use even man's sin, and especially man's sin, to speak out the message of salvation. Zimri and Cosby had free will and paid the price for their sin, and yet our all-powerful God used them to speak out the message of salvation. We need to be able to read any given narrative, though, and any symbol in the word on multiple levels. A snake is an instrument of death, yet a snake lifted on a pole represents the Messiah. The red heifer has the appearance of being covered in the uncleanness of blood, Yet, it also represents the Messiah. Zimri falls with all of his being. He fell into sin. Yet, by God's design, he too comes to represent the Messiah. But there's more going on. So, let's, let's pick up this story like a diamond again in our hands and rotate it in the light um, so that we can see another facet, another level of meaning. So interestingly, the sages say that Pinchas is Elijah, the forerunner of the Messiah. Rabbi Raskin states this idea like this. He says, as the Gemara says, Pinchas ze Eliyahu. Pinchas is Elijah the prophet. And Rabbi Raskin continues, Elijah the prophet and Pinchas were two of the same. And Elijah, Eliyahu Hanavi, is the one that will come and tell the world Mashiach is coming. Get ready. So Pinchas is directly connected with Eliyahu Hanavi. And that's the end of the quote from Rabbi Raskin. Now, connecting Pinchas to the prophet Elijah is another one of these Jewish insights that at first kind of makes you shake your head and say, where in the world are they getting that from? In the end, though, Once again, we see in the text an amazing connection that leads us straight to Yeshua. So first of all, we see Pincus here, the forerunner of of Messiah. And we, we already said that we see a picture here in Zimri and Cosby of 
Yeshua on the cross. Uh, but there's another picture of Yeshua that follows this story with Pincus. In this same Torah portion, not long after the Pincus story, we see Joshua being elevated to the leadership of Israel. So Pincus then, being the forerunner of, of uh, the Messiah in a way, if he's Elijah, he is the forerunner of this, of Joshua, Yahashua, being elevated. And of course, we hear in the name Yahashua, the origin of the name Yeshua. Again, we can sort of sneer at the Jewish scholarship that links Pinchas to Elijah, but here, such an insight leads us to the very name of the Messiah, Yahashua. Well, how does Pinchas open the way for the Messiah? Well, he does that. Um, he does what the Holy Spirit does in, in bringing us to a place of conviction and repentance. He does what John the Baptist does. What his mouth of brass does is brings Israel to repentance. When Pinchas acted and God stopped the plague, that was clear evidence that what the people were doing was indeed sinful, right? It was a message to them. He spears through um, Zimri and Cosby, and Israel gets the message, uh-oh, what we have done is wrong, because God has honored that act, and he has stopped the plague. I don't think that many in Israel clearly understood that what they were doing was sinful. Pincus becomes the vessel for making that clear. And that clear clarity is what is needed to reverse course, to repent, right? The Spirit leads us to repentance. John the Baptist leads us to repentance. And here we have Pincus, who leads the nation to begin repentance. So, switching gears now for our last connection here, I'd like to just bring out one point from the long final section of the portion, where we are given the sacrifices for each of the appointed times. Generally, the special sacrifices for each moed follow a similar pattern of bulls, rams, lambs, and goats. So it's either one or two bulls, depending on spring or fall, one or two bulls, one ram, seven lambs, and one goat. That's the pattern. So it's the pattern until we get to Sukkot anyway. <laughs> Sukkot blows everything out of the water in numbers, particularly with the bulls. The bulls offered... Um, again, are either one or two. But at Sukkot, the total is 70. We also find that for Sukkot, I suppose if there's uh, two being offered every day during the seven days of Passover, then we'd end up with 14 on that side. But um, here we have 70. We also find that for Sukkot, um, the rams and the lambs are doubled. Two rams every day, and 14 lambs every day, instead of one ram and seven lambs. So it's hard to say exactly what's going on here with this explosion on Sukkot, including a doubling of the sheep, right? A ram is a male sheep, um, and the other, the lambs, were also male sheep. And so these are doubled, but 
Let me give a possible reading, and it's one that you're unlikely to hear coming from our Jewish brothers. Everything about Sukkot is the coming together of the whole family inside the sukkah. In the four species, the rabbis have seen, right, those four species that are shaken, um, waved. And so the rabbis have seen in those four species four different kinds of people, right, Uh, different levels, we can almost say, of their relationship with God, but they are all bound together as one. And as one, they are waved before the Lord. Well, we see the the picture of the whole world coming together in particularly Sukkot and in these 70 bowls, for one thing. Even the rabbis link these bowls to the 70 nations, a bowl for each nation. It's like each nation is coming to Jerusalem and laying down its life as a living sacrifice to God at Sukkot. Each nation is here being dedicated to God. And with the doubling of the sheep, these flock animals, we have an allusion to the coming together of the two big branches of those who follow God, the God followers, those who have submitted to God as their shepherd, right? The Jewish flock on the one hand and the Gentile flock on the other, those from the Gentiles who have genuinely devoted their lives to God. Perhaps the doubling of the sheep at Sukkot means that the two flocks are gathered together for this moed, and both are presented and dedicated to God together as living sacrifices. Well, what does this have to do with Yeshua? Sukkot is the likely time of Yeshua's incarnation, his birth, the arrival of the Messiah, at least um, at his first coming. John says that he tabernacled among us. And that word tabernacled is an allusion to the Feast of Tabernacles, which is another name for Sukkot. Yeshua is the Jewish Messiah that many among the Gentiles have wholeheartedly embraced and have found life in doing so. In him, in him alone, will the two flocks be brought together. And may that day come soon. Well, that's all for today. Thank you for listening. I will post an outline in the comments below the video. May God bless us with a great zeal for him that empowers us to do mighty things in this world for him and his kingdom. But may he also bless us with the ability and patience to bring that zeal under the strict scrutiny of the mind so that our emotions do not lead us into error. May God help us in this period of the three weeks to deeply experience the pain and suffering of this world and of the Jewish people in particular, but to also long for the rebuilding of the world. May we live to experience the full uniting of the Good Shepherd's two flocks. And may we rise up to be the people he has made us to be. Shalom.